All right, let's look at verse 7 to 10. A final battle. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive. That shouldn't surprise you. He's coming out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay? Agreement, then disagreement. Number one, God is sovereign. Satan does not escape. He's released. That may seem really obvious to you, but it's really important in the overall context of Revelation to say that when he gets out, it's because he's released. He doesn't sneak out. He doesn't break out. God releases him to do this thing. And everything he does falls within God's purpose throughout the whole book. If you paid attention to the book of Revelation, Satan is not successful at anything he tries to do in the book of Revelation. Remember the woman with the child and he's ready there to devour the child? The dragon's there. Does he devour the child? No. When he doesn't devour the child in chapter 12 and 13, he tries to kill the woman and pursue the woman. Does he get the woman? No, he doesn't get her. He deceives people, but he doesn't overpower people. He's a deceiver. And here, God is sovereign over his activity or his lack of activity. He is released to deceive the nations. And Osborne is helpful. Revelation emphasizes strongly that Satan does not overpower people. Rather, he deceives them. The authority of Satan and his minions comes from God. It's controlled by God. The power of Satan is entirely earthly and finite compared with the overwhelming power of the Lord God Almighty. So God is sovereign. Number two, Gog and Magog. This represents the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. Do not equate Gog and Magog with modern-day nation-states. I don't, I don't need Russia theories. I don't need Hamas theories this week. I don't need all kinds of theories about it's them, it's this. Well, have you seen their flag, their flag? It's none of that. If you go back and read Gog and Magog, it comes straight out of the book of Ezekiel, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, pretty much everyone agrees. You don't need to try to equate these with one specific nation. That is not the point. You remember the seven sevens? Started off with letters to real churches. Whatever this Gog and Magog means, it has to have been able to be comprehended by the people who originally read it, and they didn't know anything about Russia or Hamas. So you've got to just put it in the category of these are God's enemies. Uh, I gave you a quote from Mounts and Keener. They do not agree about almost anything on Revelation 20. They take entirely different views. And I don't agree with Mounts about much of his views about Revelation 20, but they both just make the point uh, this is representative of God's enemies. And Keener makes the great point, if you actually read Ezekiel, Gog is not a nation. Gog is a ruler of a nation. It's Gog who rules over Magog. But that's not how it's written in Revelation. It's written as Gog and Magog, as if they're the same. So, these are God's enemies. Okay, next. There's a parallel with Ezekiel 36 to 48. I wish we had time to trace this out because this is amazing. 
I don't know if you've ever read through the Old Testament and read through Ezekiel. If you make it to these end chapters, you're exhausted. And these end chapters are really weird. Uh, people are getting rock hearts ripped out of their chest and they're getting hearts of flesh. And a valley of bones is coming to life. And there's this Gog and Magog attack. And there's a supernatural deliverance at the last second. God saves his people. And then there's this long section. It's so weird where they build a new temple. And Ezekiel's like flying around checking this temple out. God's going to live with his people again. That's the story you just read. They came to life. We just read that. That's Ezekiel 36 and 37. You get a new heart, valley of dry bones. God brings his people to life. They have enemies who attack them. God supernaturally protects his people and destroys their enemies. And then God comes to live with his people. That's the ending of Ezekiel, and that's the ending of Revelation. It's the exact same story. So everyone agrees there's a parallel there. Uh, next, the enemies of God are described as sand of the sea. That's straight out of the Old Testament. You can look the references up. Next, the fire from heaven is reminiscent of Elijah and the prophets of Baal and Ahab's soldiers. You can read 1 Kings and 2 Kings. I think you're probably familiar at least with the first story, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Uh, next, the beloved city in this passage is Jerusalem. And this is a fascinating part of how Revelation develops. The last time you read about Revelation specifically, I think was back around chapter 11, and it talked about Revelation as the moral equivalent of Sodom and Gomorrah. But now you're at the point where Christ is returned for his people. We talked about this wedding last month. There's a wedding and the bride was given pure clothes. And she's celebrating with the groom. And now Jerusalem's not described as Sodom and Gomorrah. But she's described as the beloved city. Uh, one last point of agreement. These verses describe the final defeat of the unholy trinity as Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. That's verse 20, uh, 1920. If you go back to the previous chapter, we read about the beast and the false prophet got thrown into the lake of fire at the end of chapter 19. But it's interesting that the dragon did not get thrown in with them. It's just the beast and the false prophet. And so you're wondering if you're reading along, well, there's two out of the three. In this unholy trinity, the dragon, the beast, false prophet. Two of them are already in the lake of fire. What about the dragon? Well, he gets thrown in here. And so the whole trio uh, is thrown into the lake that burns with fire. So everyone pretty, pretty well agrees on those things. Points of disagreement, I think, is obvious. When is this happening? Historic premillennialism says this happens at the end of the millennium, and it's viewed as a second Armageddon. So I want to explain that. We came last week to the end of chapter 19. Historic premillennialism says the timeline marches on from 19 to 20. And at the end of 19, we read about the Battle of Armageddon. And now, when Satan's released, there's this one last battle at the end. And so this view says it's kind of like a second Armageddon. It's already happened at the end before the millennium. Now, at the end of the millennium, there's sort of a repeat. Amillennialism says, no, it's just the same thing being described again. We've read this before. John's talked about it before. It's just a repeat uh, of the slaughter. Remember, it's not really a battle. It's just the slaughter of Armageddon because God's people don't have to do any fighting. 
So that gets you up through verse 10. Let's look at the last section of chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's a heavy section. Note some agreement and some disagreement here. Uh, agreement. There's a parallel with Daniel 7. We're not going to trace that out. I'm just giving you the Old Testament references and allusions. Daniel talks about thrones and books and judgment and all that stuff in chapter 7. And it's all the same imagery here at the end of 20. Uh, the final judgment will be based on our works. That kind of sounds weird for Protestants to say. I'm not saying to you that your salvation will be a matter of works. I'm saying to you the final judgment will be of your works. And there's a difference in saying you can be saved by your works and saying you are going to be judged according to your works. And Revelation is clearly here describing a, a judgment that is based on works. Shriner's helpful. All the dead, poor, powerful, stand before God's throne to be assessed. Books are opened, including a book of life, meaning the time of judgments at hand. The dead are judged by what's written in the book. That is, according to the works. Scripture repeatedly says that judgment will be according to works. Uh, and he gives you some verses. It's not just Revelation that says this. Um, judgment will be according to works. Mounts, again, I'm trying to give you, when I give you some of these quotes, guys who disagree on a lot of things, but they agree on this. This final judgment is based on works. So, if that makes you uncomfortable, let me follow it up with this. The only way to survive the great white throne judgment is to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. So, John makes a distinction between books, the books that are opened, these books that contain your deeds, and the Lamb's book of life in which names are written. And that's a biblical theme that you can trace all the way back to Exodus 32. Remember the story in Exodus 32? Moses and the Israelites and the golden calf. And Moses says, blot me out of the book and keep them in. He's willing to take places uh, with the people. Luke 10, Jesus sends the disciples out on a mission. They come back, hey, the demons listened to us. We healed people. It was great. And Jesus says, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice in that your names are written in heaven your name's written in heaven hebrews 12 is the first uh the church of the firstborn those whose names are enrolled in heaven there's a list of names of god's people um we've seen it promised in revelation 3 and 13 so your name has to be written in the lamb's book of life to survive this judgment the last enemy to be destroyed is death that's how John describes it, and that fits with exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says just that. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death and Hades are thrown in. Um, so that fits with what Paul says. Now, 
We'll chase one quick rabbit to follow up on last week. Ramsey Michaels. Hades is not hell, as understood in the Christian tradition, but the grave corresponding to Sheol in the Hebrew Bible. It's never mentioned by itself in the book of Revelation, but only as the companion of death. So I gave you a, a little graphic last week. This comes out of a book by Matt Emerson called He Descended to the Place of the Dead. And he gives this Hebrew cosmology with this place called Sheol, the grave. And this is a graphic he gives on a different page. And what I said to you is that this place of the dead, all of this right side fits in right here in this understanding of Sheol, this place of the dead in the Hebrew mind. In the place of the dead, there's a place of the righteous dead. And the Bible calls that place paradise. And there's a parable from Jesus that calls it Abraham's bosom. And it's the place where you read about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob dying and being gathered to their fathers. They're gathered to their family. That takes place here where God's people uh, are gathered to a place of life. Where Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus was going to the place of the dead and part of that place is paradise. And he told the thief that he was going to go there. There's also the place of the unrighteous dead. And in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, Lazarus was in this place and the rich man was in this place. It's not a good place to be. It's a place of misery and it's a place of ongoing sin and anger towards God. So that's the unrighteous dead. There's also a place the Bible references called Tartarus, uh, a place where fallen angels are kept. Guess what they're kept with? Chains in gloomy darkness. Are they kept with literal metal chains? No. God's keeping them there as a place of judgment. And what John's describing in death and Hades, giving up their dead in this final resurrection, he's describing this place of the unrighteous dead in a second resurrection, I think, where these people are raised to stand before God at the great white throne for a final judgment. Clearly, there's some part of judgment taking place to determine if you go to one of these places, but there's a final judgment that takes place before this great white throne, and in the end, all of this death in Hades is thrown into the lake that burns with fire, into hell, and it's a place prepared for the devil and his angels. It's a horrific place, so we can talk more about that rabbit trail if you want to at some point. Uh, points of disagreement on this last section. There's a question about where the dead come from uh, for the great white throne judgment. Historic premillennialism says it's the second resurrection at the end of the millennium. And amillennialism, you know by now, says there's just one resurrection. There's not really two. And so it's just the resurrection when Christ returns. Uh, disagreement about when it's happening. Historic premillennialism says it's the end and it's a distinct period of history. The millennium is and amillennium says uh, it's just the interadvental period of church history, which we've already, we've already worked through that. All right, so let's talk about conclusion. Wrap it up for chapter 20. One word of caution and maybe encouragement. When you're interpreting a notoriously difficult and contested passage, you need to make sure to see the plain things as the main things and the main things as the plain things. That's straight from Alistair Begg. He says that all the time in his sermons, in his teaching, in his writing. 
when you're working through Scripture, make sure that the plain things in the text are the main things in your mind. And the main things uh, are always the plain things. So, here's a great quote from Mounts. And I don't agree with Mounts on a lot of how he works through this chapter. But I like this. Judging from the amount of attention given by many writers to the first ten verses of chapter 20, one would think they were the single most important segment of the book. The tendency of many interpreters at this point is to become apologists for a particular view of the millennium. Without denying the significance of this passage, it should not be elevated above such basic themes as the return of Christ, final judgment, removal of wickedness, and the splendor of the eternal state. Um, when you teach Revelation 20, you've got to kind of pick a side, or at least you have to pick two sides and waffle between them. But you've got to think of a way, how am I going to present it? You have to say what you think it means or what it could mean. Um, but I agree with Mounts, even though we disagree on Revelation 20, this isn't the most important theme in Revelation. It is important, and you need to wrestle with it, and you need to think through it, and you need to try to be coherent in your thinking. But these big ideas are the things that Revelation is trying to drive home to us, not specific timelines that we have fine-tuned and perfectly worked out. And that's why I gave you, as we went through this section, agreement and disagreement. I'm not, I promise, I'm not trying to be wishy-washy. I'm not trying to ride the fence too much. But I'm trying to say to you as we work through this chapter, agreement. These are the main things. These are the things that you can really hold with a tight fist and be sure about. Disagreement. These are the things you're going to have to maybe hold a little bit more loosely and say, well, I don't know, depending on your view, how do you sort it out, other issues come into play. Main things, plain things, plain things, main things. Okay? Revelation 20 brings a lot of themes to completion. And we'll just mention three. Number one, the judgment of the dragon finally takes place. So you've been waiting on this. He's tried to devour the child. He's tried to devour the woman. He's tried to fight Michael in heaven. He's tried to do all sorts of things, deceive the nations. Um, the beast and the false prophet have already been thrown into the lake of fire, at least as we've read it in Revelation. And now we read that the dragon uh, will be thrown in as well. Second, the judgment of the dragon helps us understand the problem of evil, which is what theologians call theodicy. Theos is the Greek word for God, and dike is a Greek word for uh, justifying or defending or arguing. So a theodicy is a defense of God in the face of evil. And one of the things that this millennial period shows, I think it really shows it clearly on historic premillennialism, is that if you take the opinion of Satan being bound and not being able to deceive the nations during this period of the millennium. And then at the end, he's released. So you have a thousand years, you have a really long time with no Satan roaming around seeking people to devour. What do you have at the end of the millennium when he gets out? You have a horde of people, like the sand on the seashore, who are immediately ready to follow him. And that shows over that period we can't blame the devil for our sin. There's a thousand years where he's bound and he's not deceiving the nations and you come to the end of it and these people are ready to jump 
and to defy Christ and try to overthrow him. Obviously, it's not a successful rebellion, uh, but it does help us understand human opposition to God. You can't just say, the devil made me do it. Adam and Eve started that way back. Serpent deceived us. We didn't know. I, it was, we got confused. It's not an excuse. Never has been an excuse. Number three, the judgment of the dragon leads to the vindication of the saints. All the way back in Revelation 6, you remember the question from the saints in heaven, in paradise, how long, how long till you avenge our blood? And what did the one on the throne tell them? Just a little while longer. It's going to happen, and it finally happens here. Those saints who were faithful and who suffered, they're given robes, and they're given thrones, and they're given authority and judgment they're finally vindicated. Uh, I'll let you read those quotes there from Ladd and, and the other one. Next point on your notes, there will be a final judgment. Revelation 20 makes that clear. We can argue about lots of details. You can disagree with all my millennial musings, but you've got to agree with the idea that Revelation 20 clearly lays out there will be a judgment a great white throne judgment, and everyone will stand before the Almighty, and the books will be opened, and human beings will be judged according to what they've done. And the only hope you have for not being thrown in the lake of fire is that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So there will be a final judgment. Um, I think that's a good reminder just to try to connect this, not in a super weird way, to events of the last week. I don't know how much you've just watched the news or you've dug online and found some of the atrocities being committed uh, and you watch these things and you think, man, some, I want justice for that. It's so wrong. It's so evil. It's so horrific. And Revelation is saying to you, it's in the book. And the book's going to get opened. And it's all going to get sorted out. And God's going to bring justice on people. There will be a final judgment. Um, Poitras is helpful injustice and suffering never escape God's eye those who persecute and those who practice injustice can never win God will judge every deed all wrongs will be righted all attempts to dethrone God and enthrone oneself will be completely frustrated the prospect of a final judgment ought to be terror to God's enemies and a foundation of assurance to the saints along with that hell or the lake of fire is a horrific end it's a horrific end to what we're reading in chapter 19 and 20. And I'm not going into a full-orbed argument about what hell is and explanation and what is it, what is it not. Uh, but it's clear in Revelation that it's a place prepared for the devil and his angels. And it's a place where the beast and the false prophet and the dragon are thrown. Those are spiritual beings, beast, false prophet, dragon. It would be odd for there to be physical torments of spiritual beings. But it is a place of torment, and you have to sort that out. And you have to make sense of the imagery Jesus used, not just John in Revelation, but Jesus in the Gospels, in speaking about this lake that burns with fire and this eternal torment. Um, in the end, we read, if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he's thrown into the lake that burns with fire. 
And as you keep reading into chapter 21 and chapter 22, you realize if you're thrown into that lake that burns with fire, you miss the best part of the book. That's it. You're not part of the new heavens. You're not part of the new earth. You're not part of the new Jerusalem. And so we can argue and debate, what does it mean? How is there fire and darkness in the same place? Is it a literal fire? Is it fire that somehow doesn't produce light? I don't know. Is it physical torment forever and ever? You just have to make sense of these things and realize it's heavy, it's weighty, it's eternal. There's a final judgment. And if you're involved in that, you miss the best part of the book. So last, the lamb is the only one who can give the gift of eternal life. The judgment is according to our deeds. The life that is promised at the end of the book is according to whose name is written in the Lamb's book. Um, And what you read here at the end of Revelation 20 fits with John 14. Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It fits with the apostles in Acts 4 saying there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved except the name of Jesus. It fits with 1 Timothy 2.5. There's one mediator between God and man. It's the man Christ Jesus. It fits with Revelation 1.18 where Jesus says, I lived and I died and I'm alive and I hold the keys of death in Hades. I'm in charge of that. I'm the authority over it. He makes the decisions. Revelation 4.9 uh, is a good place to end uh, on a hopeful note in Revelation. So we we'll just read these verses and then we'll pray. Thinking about the Lamb giving His people life. This is back to the centering vision. Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. Uh, I wrote it down as 4.9 to 10. It's actually 5.9 to 10. It says, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, they're singing to the Lamb, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's what we just read about in Revelation 20. So God, we're grateful for the book of Revelation. There's things in this chapter that are hard to make sense of. Um, There's things that we've heard and been taught that are hard to process and think about how they fit with uh, what the text of Scripture says. We pray that we would be teachable. Uh, We want to take your word seriously. We want to wrestle with it. We want to think about it. We want to understand it. Uh, But Lord, ultimately, we don't come to Revelation 20 to win an argument. Uh, We come to find truth about Jesus and truth about justice and truth about judgment, uh, truth about good and evil, truth about the future and the hope and the vindication of your people, uh, and truth about the Lamb who was slain to ransom people for you. And Lord, that gives us great hope. Not that our, our deeds written in the book will give us admission into... Uh, the new Jerusalem, but that uh, our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we're thankful for Jesus, for his life, his death, his resurrection, for the promise of his return and the hope of eternity. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.